Welcome to the Guitar Omni Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. I'm here with Matt Hensley. He's the executive director of Austin Classical Guitar, one of, I think, the, the premier guitar societies in the country. I think they're just doing amazing things and have been doing amazing things in Austin for, for quite some time. So how are you doing, Matt? You know, I'm doing really well, Carl. It's a beautiful day in Austin, Texas, and awesome. uh, I'm excited to get to see you again after a long time of not seeing you. <laughs> I'm excited to hear your voice, and uh, and so just just thrilled to be here and excited for our conversation. Well, thank you. It's 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 good to have you. Um, and I have to tell you that uh, I think you're you're. You and Steve Aaron are in the running for the most mentioned people on the Guitar Money podcast, and, and the fact that you were, of course, a, a student of Steve's um, makes it all the all the all the better. But I, it's it's funny because I've I've talked to so many people that have had connections to you, um, or it, you know have have pointed me in your direction and i thought you know it's 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 time to get you on absolutely you know because all these people talking about you i gotta get you get you here so i love um, it carl well you know i mean of course steve was such a huge influence on me as he is on so many people and um and it was really steve uh when i was a student of his at oberlin it was really steve who encouraged me in the direction of uh arts management early on okay. he encouraged me to start uh the oberlin guitar club uh that would go on i don't know oh if it's still gosh. going but um but i i uh would would work with him to get that going in in uh, 1993 and uh, really, that was my first taste of arts management. What would happen? You know, we 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 petitioned the student government at Oberlin for some funds and managed to hire our first guitarists. And after the first year, we reported back and got a little bit more funds the next year, and then even more funds the third year. And so, oh my gosh! Um, so that was really uh, um, an, an early education for me in sort of the power of making a case, raising money, hiring somebody, making some fun happen and then reporting back and then watching something grow so you had a the, the, the guitar club was a student-run concert series yeah absolutely so I was one of the very first guitar students uh, at Oberlin right um, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah. and, and it was kind of a funny situation in that they needed guitarists because my year was the very first year. And so right. um, so they they recruited me actually out of a out of my sophomore year of high school. So I didn't ever oh, wow. go to never finished high school and I never what? had a junior or senior year. And I also didn't apply for, to college or take the SATs. I just <laughs> found myself at Oberlin as a 16 year old. And, um, and then, you know, Randy Avers of course transferred in the following year as right. a sophomore. Right. And okay. so he and I graduated, uh, we were the only two first two graduates in 1996 from okay. Oberlin. 
And what that meant in this context is that there was very little infrastructure at Oberlin for guitar. I mean, there really there was no right. guitar concert series. There was no master classes. There were, you know, these things really just were hadn't been built yet. And so, yes, it fell to the student organization um, that Steve and I sort of co-created to find the money to get any of that done. Amazing. Fantastic. That's that's great. Was it was it his idea? Or was it your idea? I'm sure it was his idea, okay. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't really remember. Okay. And where, where did, where were you going to high school? How, what was your connection? How did Oberlin find you when you were 16? Yeah, I was at Interlochen. Um, okay. So, you know, Oberlin recruits heavily from Interlochen. Yes. The, there's more funny business to the story in that I had only just arrived <laughs> at Interlochen literally three weeks before the admissions director at Oberlin showed up. So I, I transferred to Interlochen January of whatever year that was, 1992. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I'd only been there for three weeks when Mike Mandarin showed up and saw me in a practice <laughs> room and said, guitar, I need, I need you at Oberlin next year. So, wow. Um, oh my yeah. gosh. And who, who were you studying with, or who, I guess you were studying with for three three months. I was going to say who were you supposed to study with. Uh, 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 who, 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 was, who was the teaching, who was doing the teaching interlocking at that time? Yeah, you know, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it was, in fact, Mike. Um, okay, so Mike it was. Okay. was a lute player and a jazz player. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so he had... Um, you know, we'd met like two or three times and okay. then, uh, and then the conversation about Oberlin started. Amazing. And then and where did you grow up? Where were you from? I'm from uh, the middle of New York state. So okay. I was born in, uh, in a little town called Hamilton, New York, uh, okay. which is where Colgate university is. And uh, it's very central, uh, central New York. Um, and I, I spent most of my time um, there until I was 15, and then I bounced around a little bit, went to Arizona briefly, back to New York, and then out to Interlochen. Okay. And did you start playing classical as, as, as a young person? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I started when I was um, 10 years old, and oh, wow. I had okay. um, started before that as a... Um, I had started before that as a uh, violin player uh, when I was okay. four. Cello came shortly after that. I played uh, piano for a few years. So I really kind of grew up playing music, reading okay. music, yeah. um, and uh, began. Um, uh, I was spending a lot of time in um, the music room at the elementary school where I was. So in, in okay. Hamilton, there was, it was at the time a town of about 2000 people uh -huh. and there was only one school K through 12 in the same building. Okay. And, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so, um, there was one music teacher, uh, for the whole elementary school. His name was Frank Vecchio and uh, Frank was the string teacher as well. So I was playing cello quite a lot by fourth grade Okay, and was in a little string quartet. We would meet after school and play in retirement homes and stuff like that. Fantastic. And so, um, so I was down there in Frank's room one day and I asked him uh, which of the instruments was his favorite instrument. And he said, guitar. Uh, and guitar hadn't been kind of one of the options, you know, and sure. so so I went home to my parents and I was a musical kid and and um, and and I said, you know, I'm uh, interested in guitar. I, you know, I don't remember all the details, but they got me a guitar 
And, um, and the sad part of the story is that very shortly after I got a guitar, uh, Frank Vecchio died. He, he oh, okay. um, was killed in a car accident in a New York State winter and spun off the road in a, in a basically ice on the road kind of a situation after school one day. And so that was, uh, um, you know, one of the great tragedies, I think, of my life. And uh, for a while, I was in a pretty, pretty uh, deep funk. Um, and but at some point, I would say some number of months after his passing, my um, my parents located the man who had been Frank's teacher. OK. And that guy's name is Ed Vollmer. OK. And Ed would really become my my main teacher wow. up until oh I gosh. got to Oberlin. And Ed is an amazing man. Um, he's, uh, he's We're still in contact. Uh, uh, but when I actually recorded my first CD, my solo CD in 1998, I dedicated that CD to Frank Vecchio. Ah, amazing. Great. Wow. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's, that's cool. And so you did, did you... You did an undergraduate at, at Oberlin. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm And how did you end up in Austin? What what's, what brought you there? Well, I mean, Adam Holtzman is extremely well-known and well-respected, yeah. uh, you know, um, guru of guitar. And um, and so, uh, you know, I had never been to Texas and I didn't even know what would happen. I was a, I was a, I was a vegetarian from New York State. You know, I, I, I heard they, they ate people like me in Texas. And um, but uh, but uh, uh, but we had met, you know, I had started to see you know, Adam's students yeah. around the world winning things. And, you know, it's really very, very impressive. And it was actually a conversation with Andrew Zone in oh, Buffalo, okay. GFA, probably 1994, yeah, yeah. where he started talking about how great, you know, UT was and how great Adam was. And so when it was time for me to apply for graduate school, I applied to Eastman and Yale, USC and UT. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Adam got on the phone and, talked to me a bunch and was real interested in me. And I think that that as much as anything was really what drew me here sure. um, okay. because he really was, um, was kind and was warm. And, uh, and I came down here and spent what would be seven wonderful years, uh, studying with him, uh, learning from him as my master's and then my doctorate. Oh, fantastic. So you did do a doctor. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't sure about that. So your doctor, Matt Hensley, my goodness, I, 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 I screwed up the introduction. It is <laughs> true. It is true. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and did you, was that always the plan for you to stay there to do the, the doctorate uh, the whole time? Or did you, did you just decide after doing the master's, hey, this is going well, I think I'll stay here and, and do this? I don't think I really had ideas to go anywhere yeah. else. I mean, okay. Austin very quickly became a place that felt like home for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, I was enjoying my studies with Adam. I felt like I had more work to do. Um, I was... Uh, um, I started a business privately as an instructor and was really starting to grow, you know, that um, right. I had already taken over Austin classical guitar oh, in, in okay. right after you I arrived um, at age 20. Um, oh, so my gosh. I was running that very early on in October of 96 is when I started running it exactly wow. 25 years ago, almost today. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Wow. And, uh, and so, um, 
So, uh, so there were a lot of reasons by the time I was into my, even my second year, uh, sure. here, uh, in my master's that, you know, I wasn't really interested in, in anything else. And I, sure. you know, my, I grew up in a, you know, scholar, scholarly oriented, uh, family. Sure. And so getting a terminal degree was kind of always just what I, I wouldn't say we were pushed toward it. I would say it just, right. there was just never a question that that's right. exactly that's what, what I was That's what you do. Yeah. Whatever well, my chosen sure. field would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do your parents do? Are they academics? Yeah. Dad is a um, professor of history, uh, retired now professor of American, uh, anthropology. And, um, that is to say, history of American anthropology. Okay. And uh, he's also a really fine piano player. Uh, okay. And so I grew up hearing him play uh, all manner of music um, as a young person. My mom also plays the piano, plays very well. Uh, and um, and she's actually practicing a lot these days. It's really fun <laughs> to hear her uh, play. Um, but uh, so, so we grew up, you know, singing songs together and, and all of that sort of thing. Mom was early on in um, kind of computer systems administration administration and computer programming. So okay. she had done uh, Russian and mathematics at Vassar oh and then got out in the 80s and got into computer systems programming. And uh, so, so her career was in sysadmin. That's great. That's, that's yeah, I, I did not know that. A lot of things I didn't know about you. That's, that's great. That's very cool. So when, when you started um, with Austin Classical Guitar at, at, the, at the tender age of 20, what, what was going on with society at that time? What do, was it, it I, I know it's grown a lot since then, so um, I, I imagine that's, uh, that's a lot of you. So, but uh, what, was, what, what, was, what was going on when you, when you began that? Sure. Yeah. Um, in in um, 1996, uh, it was an all volunteer organization. Um, the corporate documents were in a box. Right. And uh, that <laughs> box very was transferred from someone else's apartment to my apartment. And, uh, and that, my apartment became the headquarters. Congratulations. Um, you're in charge. You. Yeah, it, was, it was a great honor. Um, so I became the president of the board of directors, which basically meant the chief volunteer in charge of everything. And sure. Um, and the activities at the time were primarily a meeting on the third Sunday of every month at two thirty, okay. uh, at the Austin history center. And so it was an organization that was kind of by classical guitar players for classical guitar players and the month, you know, each month we would have a little program and sometimes it kind of functioned like an open mic. Other times we would get a little bit more ambitious and actually try to develop some kind of program um, that was prepared. And then there were the occasional guest artists. So when the money could be scraped together to, to pay somebody. A lot of times it was the game of kind of who's going to be in Texas already sure. and can we sort of get them here um, uh, pretty quickly. Almost <laughs> a, exactly. Uh, yeah. Almost immediately I took over the student guitar club at UT as well. <laughs> and so I was running both for uh, many years and just sort of, you know, kind of living between the two places and so right. artists would come and they'd teach a class for the UT students. They'd play a concert for the public and we'd sort of um, mix and match the needs. But it was very, what I would say, um, insular with relationship sure. to the guitar community. Okay. Um, and uh, certainly my story is one of growing ACG in every way, both spiritually and practically outside of that community. 
Right. Um, kind of, kind of, kind of looking toward guitar as a medium for a very broad community service. Right. Uh, and so that would happen, of course, in the in the years to come. I, I think that's I think that's a pretty special. I mean, if you look around from my point of view, um, it you know the world of the Guitar Society. I think that's something that that really stands out about about Austin classical guitar. I think that's 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 really fantastic. How how did how did you come upon that? Was that was that something, you know? Did did you learn how to do that, or was that just like a flash of inspiration of Hey, I think we should do this. You know how how did that how did that take place for you? I mean, it's such a complicated answer, and 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 it includes uh, you know up to this very day, right? Because right. really, literally, we're still learning how to truly serve the community, yeah. and to 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 understand that involves a tremendous amount of listening. Okay. And so your your job really is never done, and never will be, and that's part of the beauty of it. And um, uh, and so so with that in mind, knowing that the answer to your question is twenty five years long, <laughs> I can I can um, try to condense a few of the early things into into some kind of a chronological format. Um, at Oberlin, I became very interested in the nonprofit structure as a okay. way of advancing the cause of classical guitar and of paying artists. Uh, I was the recipient, as are most guitar players, of the conventional wisdom that you can't make enough money as an artist. It's a hard field to go into financially. And, um, and I got some pretty colorful advice to, to, to just go to law school, <laughs> make a living, <laughs> and then, you know, play, play guitar whenever you want, you know, right. but at least you'll make some re real money. So, so that, that was sort of a bee in my bonnet. Mm -hmm. I was interested in, in figuring, well, why is that the case? And what, 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 you know, what is it that we might be able to build? Um, I don't want to, I don't want to advance my career. Right. I want to build a marketplace. I'm not interested okay. in fighting for a concert gig for a thousand bucks or 500 bucks. Right. I want to raise millions yeah. and with millions, I can start to pay people. Yeah. And so that became a real interest of mine. And, and so I wrote a paper at Oberlin called classical guitar and the art market. And it was something that I, um, developed, uh, over a year, uh, as an, as a, as a independent research project with an economist there named Bob Perron. And in that paper is sort of the 19-year-old um, view on how guitar could do cool stuff in the okay. community. And so that was in my background when I took over ACG in 1996 in, in Austin. And, and so I would say that the early appetite was, was how do I grow this thing? Mm -hmm. And the early goal was how do I pay artists? How do okay. I make more money to pay artists and build a marketplace for it? I was really interested in that. That, by the way, is not what drives me now. And it's not how we grew. There's something very, very different, almost precisely the opposite, actually. Interesting. Okay. What really enabled us to grow. But at that point, that was, those were really my, my, my key motivators. And so the theory early on was, um, let me program further in advance. So instead of hiring people a month out, let me hire people a year out and start mm -hmm. to develop a series. And then let me do that in combine, combination with high quality and regular communication. 
Okay. I'm going to up the quality of our, of our communication and the quantity of our communication so that people are hearing from us in the community regularly and have stuff they can depend on. They're not going to okay. be surprised by an event. They're going to know, oh, okay, so here's something that's that happening. Yeah. Right. So that was my early theory. It played out very well early on. So we went from a few members to more members to more members to more money to bigger audiences. That sort of thing happened pretty quickly just from those two factors, advanced uh -huh. planning high quality, high quantity communication. Okay. And, um, and so then the next little step was in, in 1998, uh, still kind of along these lines, I was interested in hiring and paying young guitar players. Okay. Um, and kind of young competition winner types. And so I went to the city of Austin and proposed what I called at the time an outreach series, which is now our performance engagement series. And that was quite a simple idea. And it was um, bringing in a, an artist to Austin to play 10 concerts in five days and oh, have wow. those 10 concerts be in churches and schools and retirement homes to, and I quote, reduce, remove and eliminate geographic, cultural uh, and economic barriers to hearing great music. Smart. Very smart. Very smart. So that was 1998, and, um, and we got funded, and I was able to, to bring two artists per year for the next 12 years to, art, to Austin, in some cases, three artists per year, each of whom played 10 concerts, concerts. in five days, and I would pay them $2,000 to do that. So for a young graduate student or a young competition winner right. to get $2,000 for a week of work right. worked out well for them, sure. and I was reaching 1,000 people at a time. So that started to kind of be be cool. That was 1998. So we're yeah. starting to see then. And did the funding for, from that come from the city, directly from the city? For that particular program, yes. So wow. we were selling tickets to our main series. We were growing our membership base. And then the funding for the performance engagement series, which was a separate program, was coming from the city. Wow. Did, did, was that through an arts council or what yeah, was the... Yeah, Austin okay. has a vehicle. It's, un, it's actually undergone several changes uh, since 1998 when I got involved. But it's, it lives in a place called Cultural Arts Division, which is part okay. of the Economic gotcha. Development Office. Mm -hmm. They're very interested in promoting tourism, but this is the vehicle through which the city of Austin supports nonprofit arts activities. Excellent. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a proposal process and they award you a contract. Right. To do okay. the thing that you claim you're going to do, right. and then they pay out based on your doing is, it. Um, is that an annual renewal that, that you have to do every year, or is that something that's just... They've gone to a two-year process okay. um, now in the city, um, unless, I mean, we're a, we moved to operational core support, which is what happens when you're a much larger institution. In right. 1998, we were small. We were operating right. with... Um, 25,000 or less as an annual operating budget. So yeah. we were going on a project by project basis with the city as opposed okay. to what they call core funding. Gotcha. Uh, and that's what happens when you're a larger institution. Right. What's the budget now? 1.5 million. Amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's, we're about that, we're operating about 1.5 million annually. So that, that um, is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, when you think about it, it's really quite interesting, right? Because um, 1.5 million means a little bit north of 100,000 a month. Right. And that's a little bit north of 25,000 a week. Right. Which is a little bit north of 5,000 a day. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it used to be 
that receiving a, a gift of $5,000 was something we never got, first of all. But eventually we got to a point where we would get it. And it was a huge celebration when that happened. And that was a fifth of our entire annual budget for, um, uh, you know, um, you know, for, for, for a year in 1996 right. or 97 or 98. Um, and now, you know, I've spent well beyond half of that this morning. Um, <laughs> as we're having this interview at noon. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing to have lived through and yeah. to sort of get to a, get to a complete game change in terms right. of the quantity of, 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 of dollars we're talking about and what that enables us to do in terms of service. Yeah. That's, that's tremendous. Um, so of that 1.5 million, what, like, how's, how does that break down in terms of, um, some of that is, is, is membership, some of that is ticket sales, some of that is grant money, some of that's money from the city. How does, how, how does that puzzle look? On the revenue side, um, yeah. on the revenue side, it's really diverse, uh, happily enough, and this is really, um, intentional. So it's yeah. all of the things you just mentioned. Um, <laughs> We have a significant amount of foundation support okay. um, because of guitarcurriculum.com and uh, because of Which Let's Play Which is fantastic, by the way. Wow, oh my thank gosh. you, man. <laughs> wow. Like, I, I'm still, like, going through it and, and digesting what a, what a tremendous resource that is. Thank you, man. Thank you wow. so much. We can, so we can talk about it in, in, in detail if you want to, um, but it's certainly what it's enabled us to do is really amplify a lot of service. And so when where foundations are concerned, they're always interested in investments that are going to then pay greater dividends in terms of impact. Right. And so by investing in an organization like ours that is engaged with teacher training and capacity building and program building, they, they, all, they, they invest in our direct service. That is to say, our teachers teaching actual kids. But then there's also that extra component of our model helping other people develop a model. So that right. starts to become interesting to national funders, the National Endowment for the Arts, um, and and uh, some of those national-facing foundations. Um, so there is a, a, a chunk of our funding that kind of comes from that foundation place. Yes, there is city, state, and federal support for, for Austin Classical Guitar. Um, and so we have an op a relationship with the Texas Commission on the Arts, National Endowment for the Arts, and then also um, the city of Austin, like we already talked about. Um, then we have, um, you know, our corporate sponsors and corporate philanthropy. It's a slightly smaller piece of the, of the, of the puzzle. Most, and, then, and then we have our individuals. We have about, right at this moment, 1,400 donors uh, who are individuals that yeah. believe in what we do. And, you know, there's sort of an annual renewal process. And right. some of them give $2 and some of them give $75,000. And so, you know, there's a big range in That's terms tremendous. of these annual individual donors based on their life circumstances and, and how they view us. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, so that's most of that kind of donated revenue right. on the, on the earned revenue side, you get more into things like ticket sales or sure. tuitions or people who pay for access to guitarcurriculum.com, which is yes. a handful of people do that. So that sort of thing. Yeah. And has, has that tapestry shifted and changed over the years in any significant ways or is it, has it been kind of like the same percentages or how, how, how has that happened? Oh yeah. I mean, it changes all on. the time. So, yeah. so, so early on, we really didn't have much at all in the way of foundation support and we had individuals okay. giving small amounts of money 
And then once in a while, somebody would decide they wanted to be generous and they'd give a thousand dollars and that would be, you know, a cause for a big celebration. Um, you know, so the as, as, the, as the organization grew, then you were able to, to pursue those, those larger mm -hmm. sources of funding, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's always, you know, revenue is really hard to predict in this business. So yeah. we can predict our expenses pretty well because we <laughs> commit to what we're going to pay for and then we can you know, execute on that. But the, but the, uh, but the revenue side, uh, you know, I always, I always sort of joke with my board because it's their job to look at the, at the money and to look at right. the, the financial reports, both inflow and outflow. And, and what's so interesting about us is that we have been within 5% of budget, as far as I can remember, every year for the last 20 Good for years. for you. That's, so we have budgeted a certain thing. Great. We've almost yeah. always landed there. But the way in which we get there is almost <laughs> always a surprise. Sometimes we overachieve in one area and underachieve in another. And sure. so if you're, if you're too closely, you know, kind of, kind of um, you know, you might be disappointed or agitated if you, if you start looking at, hey, why are we behind this month in, you know, this one area? Right. You know, but, but, but it sort of almost always shakes out in the end. Um, right. And... Uh, I'm not, I'm not, all I know is that it keeps happening. Right. And that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And so, and t tell me a little bit more about the programming side of things, because, you know, obviously there's, there's a concert series. There's, you probably have a couple different wings of that bird flying. Um, lots of community outreach. I know that, that here in Columbus, we've just started a, an initiative that's Jonathan Ganji is, is helping us with that. And so he's cool. modeling everything after what you guys have done with, wow. with, the, with the juvenile correction initiative there. Um, and so, and I know, I know you have other things going on. So tell, tell me a little bit about the diversity in programming and how that's, that's worked for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's probably best to see uh, ACG's programming in, in a couple of big buckets. So um, bucket one is art. Uh, bucket two is education. Okay. Bucket three is is uh, kind of community engagement, and bucket four is healing. Ah. And so, um, in the art bucket is where those concerts um, live. Um, you know, we're in a weird time right now with the pandemic, so it's kind of right. not what we used to do. And, and so it's hard to say what will emerge, but it used to be that we would have essentially six different concert series running at any given time. Wow. Um, and uh, produce about a hundred major events a year oh um, of all kinds. I mean, Amazing. big ones, small ones, TV shows, radio shows, um, you know, lots of collaborations, silent film, you know, new original final film scores. Um, uh, the, um, you know, big flamenco shows, um, you know, house concerts, yeah. free concerts in the library. I mean, so it's, so it's really kind of all over the map. We're sort of looking at, at not, so this gets, this gets back to actually something that's very, very important. I mentioned earlier that my initial motivation in all of this was to build a marketplace and pay guitar players. What happened organically over the course of mm, 10 years, let's say, is that my mindset evolved through many people and through many experiences to become a mindset of a community servant. I stopped being about guitar. And the organization stopped being about guitar. It became an organization of service with guitar as the medium for that service. 
And so that's a profound shift. And when you start thinking about people, one of the exercises I love to do with, with young executive directors and boards, boards of directors is to have them just brainstorm constituents in their community that they might want to serve. Well, we want to serve veterans. We want to serve homeless individuals. We want to serve seniors in community centers. We want to, okay, make your list. We want to serve kids in this school, that school, this university. Make, make your list. Pick one of those constituents. Let's say it's senior citizens. Now take one of the core functions of a guitarist, let's say playing a concert. And now let's spend time thinking about how can we best serve that constituency of senior citizens mm -hmm. with what we know how to do as a guitar concert performers. Right. And so the classic model is, well, we're going to play, you know, Soar and Bach and Targa, and then they're going to come to us. And if they can't, maybe we'll go to them. Right. And that's okay. But <laughs> can we take that and shift it five gears higher? Can we go talk to that group of people and figure out what is the most valuable? Can we figure out where their relationships with their family members locally reside? What is their favorite music? What are they interested in? What might they want to sing along with? Of the last 10 performers they've seen at their facility, which one did they like the most? What got the best results? Can we learn from all of that? And then not necessarily take our box soar and Tariga into that facility and play the concert that we learned in graduate school. <laughs> but can we, can we do for them something with the skills we possess that is going to be the best possible thing we can do for them? Yeah. And that means what time of day do we do it? What admission, if any, do we charge? Where does the concert take place? Who are the artists? And all of these sliders that we have to begin to impact. So when we start thinking about, you know, wow, that's a lot of concerts for Austin Classical Guitar to do, to do 100 concerts. Well, yeah, but we also have a big city. And right. we're meeting different people in different ways with different kinds of solutions. And right. that is really a, a limitless mindset as opposed to a very limited that's mindset. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, what I'm, what I'm hearing, which strikes me, is, is that you're not making assumptions. You know, you're not looking at, at a, a, a core constituency or a group of people and making assumptions and just saying, well, we're going to bring this to them. You're actually going to them and saying, hey, tell us about you. Mm -hmm. what, you know, what, what can we do for you? And mm -hmm. what you know, and then it's going to look different for this group of people than it might for this group of people. So absolutely, you know, I, I, I that's that's I mean that's fantastic. So how does how does that how does that filter down? You know, as as a, as opposed to you know Sorenbach and Targa, like mm -hmm. when it comes time for the programming, how did like give me an example of how that that has filtered down into something that you know. I'm not making an assumption that I'm going to play this kind of program for this this group of people. Can you give me a simple example of, of, of something that's Absolutely. happened that way? And I'll begin w with a caveat, and that is to say we do plenty of Sorbach and, and, and Hart. So, <laughs> sure. so it's great music, and we love it, and we love yeah. the traditional concerts where great artists that are coming, and they play what they want to play. And, you know, we, we often will talk with guest artists about what's on their program, and we'll sort of align what it is that we're trying to accomplish uh, with what they are ready to do and are interested in. And so there is a little bit of discussion about that, but um, sure, you know, there's a, there are, there are various flagship series happening uh, around in different ways. Um, okay. One example, 
In Texas, there's something called UIL. Okay. University Interscholastic League. And that governs all interscholastic contests of any kind, sports, musical, academic, or otherwise. Okay. So if you are a music student in Texas, you go to a UIL contest once a year for a judge, and you play a UIL-sanctioned solo on a list of UIL solos, and then the judge gives you something. And if you do well enough, you go to a state round, and then you get maybe a trophy or something, right? So this is a common mechanism that classroom teachers use to motivate students to get feedback on their students and to evaluate the quality of their programming and their teaching, et cetera. So our, um, it just so happens that we have 51 school programs in our direct vicinity with just over 4,000 students involved in classical guitar for credit on a daily basis. Amazing. So these are programs we've built and are all connected to guitarcurriculum.com, et cetera, over the last 20 years. Um, so that's a lot of kids, potentially, yeah. that might go participate in UIL on okay. the guitar. And so our performance engagement artist, who plays 75 concerts a year for us in schools, decided that he was going to learn and memorize 44 UIL solos. Okay and put them into a menu. And he, he would put the name of, the name of the piece, what level, is it a level one, a level two, or level three? That's how UIL works. The name of the piece, and then a little description of it. It's, it's fast and lively, or sad and doleful, or beautiful from Romania, or whatever the, the, <laughs> the, the descriptor is. Sure. And he would go to Austin middle schools and high schools, and um, basically deliver kids the menu and say, what do you want to hear? And they would choose your own adventure through the program and you would play and they would choose things from their level. So their teacher would say, why don't you all choose from level one, you know, and then our play, our, 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 our guy, Joseph Palmer would play beautifully because that's what he does. <laughs> and then coming out of that experience, the students would themselves then choose their UIL solo and then a month or two later, Joseph would go back for like a masterclass format and the kids could play for him. So that would be an extra motivating factor for them. And then we recorded Joseph playing all 44 solos and put them all on our website. So they because a lot of these kids don't have private instructors, but they could have a model video to, 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 to play. So there's an example of, an, of, 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 of a performance engagement artist picking a program with a very specific purpose in mind. We know yeah. that these pieces are of interest to this group of people sure. for a very specific reason. Yeah. We're going to build some infrastructure around it. And Carl, what happened is in the first year, the number of UIL kids doing guitar tripled. Oh, and by wow. the third year, there were more kids doing UIL guitar on Region 18 than any other instrument. Oh, fantastic. Wow. And so yeah. you taught you. So I'm, I'm always very interested. I, I have a mantra that I call um, keeping your eye on the invisible ball. Okay. And so when you're playing concerts in schools, you might think, okay, well, let's measure our success by how many kids has Joseph Palmer played for in schools. Fine. That's a fine yeah. metric. If you really must know that number, we can tell you <laughs> that number. But what's much more meaningful to me is what happens in the hearts 
of the people that hear Joseph Palmer play. And what we have now, anecdotal and also some quantitative evidence of, of course, is that a whole bunch of kids got fired up. And they got fired up because he brought to them something that was relevant to their journey. Yeah. Another example is in 2018, we became very, in 2017, I'm sorry, January 2017, we became very interested and very concerned, you could say, um, by the uh, global refugee crisis um, with relationship to Syria. Okay. And this was something we were talking about, and we have a guiding question at Austin Classical Guitar, which is, what good can music do in the world today? What good can music do in the world today? So we asked that guiding question, and the answer that came in that particular case was, let's build an artwork built on empathy. And so we, um, there were at the time refugees from Syria and other places in the Middle East settling in Austin. And so we partnered with Refugee Services of Texas, um, got to know many of those individuals, did many, many hours of interviews with them to learn about their life experience, their exodus, what they had seen, what they had been through. And from those interviews, developed a piece of music to basically be a canvas on which to share aspects of their stories and some of their core concepts um, in a piece that we called I, We. Um, the next year, we did a similar piece called Dream that was built around youth voices and youth experiences. And the following year, we did a piece called Together that was built around the experiences of older adults um, dealing with isolation. Wow. And, and are, so are these, are these ensemble works? Are these chamber music, solo works? What's these the... all came out as ensemble works with okay. recorded voice as well. So oh, you would hear wow. the voices of the interviewees. Um, you can hear the second movement of I, We on our YouTube page. Okay. Um, very powerful. You can wow. hear the, um, we actually turned the dream production into a feature film. It's a one hour feature film that you can watch on our YouTube page as well. Uh, dream Amazing. is a really, really stunning. Where is this YouTube page? What, uh, how do we find <laughs> Just this? Austin Classical Guitar. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, um, so so we've, we've got just a little piece. So we actually redid together um, into something we called Together 2020, which was a live stream thing that we did with a dance company. Mm -hmm. Drone footage yeah. in different parts yeah, of Yeah, I saw that. It was, it was amazing. Did you see 20, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I, um, uh, I We 2020? So, yeah. so that's online as well. So some of this you can see on YouTube. But um, I'm going to give you, I've got so many examples, but I'm going to give you just <laughs> one more because I think hopefully each of these will kind of illuminate yeah. you know, what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, Last October, um, we uh, we partnered with Mexicarte Museum in Austin and did a project called Ofrendas. Okay. And um, Ofrendas was an invitation to the community to um, create a musical offering for a loved one who had passed away. Okay. And I, we were really moved by, you know, we were in the middle of this pandemic lockdown mm -hmm. and 
people were dying, not just from COVID, but right. just because of life. Right. <laughs> and there were many stories of people not being able to go to a funeral mm-hmm. or be with a loved one as they were passing away or sick in a hospital. Yeah. That was very moving. And then there was also this sort of overall sense of loss, the sense of mourning of our way of life. Yeah. That had changed. And so we just felt like an opportunity to use music as a way of being in mourning and sharing it with others would be a powerful thing. And so in um, the Mexican and Latin American cultures, there's something called Dia de los Muertos, mm-hmm. which everybody knows about because of the Coco movie. Uh, right. If not <laughs> otherwise, you may know about it because of your own traditions or, be, or because you just know what it is. But anyway, Dia de los Muertos is uh, a tradition and uh, where, where, where the spirits of the dead come back uh, for a period of time. And so in that tradition, you create an altar. And on that altar, you place offerings to those loved ones to welcome their spirits back. You put things on there that they used to love and you put their picture on there. And that is called an offering or an ofrenda. Mm -hmm. And so this project was to create a musical ofrenda and also to learn about this tradition and to to help people understand more about Dia de los Muertos and the tradition in general. So there's a cultural exchange goal in this particular project and then a community-wide, you know, goal of connection and sharing. And, uh, and then at the same time, we commissioned 20 professionals, that is to say paid commissions, yeah. to actually create artworks for this project. So uh, the roll-up was a, a professional streamed show of these 20 professionally created things that became a feature presentation that we offered yeah. as a live stream. And you can see them on our YouTube page, tons of ofrendas made by people in our community in addition to the professionals. Um, And that was a very emotional and beautiful thing to do. So again, this is all like really different stuff. I didn't hear anything about guitar in, in this project. I'm sorry? I didn't hear anything about guitar in this project. <laughs> right. Well, and that's part of the thing, right? Of course, if you see the shows, you'll see the guitar is woven throughout all of it. And, okay. um, but, you know, with this particular project, Ofrendas, we actually didn't insist that people yeah. involved guitar at all or classical guitar at all. Um, in the other programs, I, We Dream, and Together, um, yeah. and uh, whatever the other one was that I mentioned, um, you know. But the point of it all is that yeah. this is art making that is kind of community responsive. Yes, yes. And and so it's it stretches us. It's hard. This isn't easy. Right. Because, right. you know, it doesn't let you go play Capriccio Arabe again. <laughs> um, and you may really be good at Capriccio Arabe. Yeah. And it's a wonderful piece of music. And again, we have plenty yeah. of occasions where that's the right thing to do. But we yeah. also have plenty of occasions where we're, where we're sort of stretching and asking right. people to really respond to the community. Right. And, and the other part of that, too, you know, not to be trite about it, but, you know, experiencing something like that. Um, might inform the way that I play Capriccio Arbe the next time I play it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think you know it, it's it's this expansive thing that happens to people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and what you're dealing with is possibilities and potentials, and mm-hmm. you know this this idea again, the creative mind is all about that, right? Like reaching out, what think thinking of something that doesn't exist, and let's let's bring it into into being right mm-hmm. you know and 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 that you know 
that's going to affect every aspect of everything that everybody does after that that point in time and that's that's why you do it right so yeah i, I couldn't agree uh, more carl you know and it isn't that what music is right, right. music is sort of these vibrations and um and 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 they change vibration afterward and i'm quoting now from pepe romero who told me that in an interview i did recently with him uh, but um but it's but it's but it's really pretty profound and um and so I think um, one other, speaking of kind of ripple effects and how one thing informs another, I think a lot of where we are now as an organization couldn't have happened without the other three buckets. So we only have talked about the first bucket, which is bar. Yeah. <laughs> still my mind's on, on the first bucket. There's <laughs> education, community engagement, yeah. and healing. And it's really a lot of that work, especially in the healing arena. Well, actually, all three of them um, that relate to this kind of community um, uh, art making. So talk, talk a little bit about, about the other three buckets and, 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 and that, <laughs> sure. that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. In education, um, I think it's best to think of, of what we've gotten up to in, in two kind of axes. So at the bottom, you've got systems building and breadth. Um, so um, buildinggitarcurriculum.com, which we built between 2004 and 2008, and it launched online in 2008, okay. um, was really a, a system that's highly um, flexible. It's a very yes. flexible, uh, modular system that teachers can use. And we built it because we needed it desperately. Okay. We got involved in school-based education in 2001 and with elbow grease and real, a little bit of inventing the wheel, <laughs> we, we, we had some success early on. We inspired some kids. We, 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 we put our method books on every music stand and taught kids just like it was a private lesson, except there were yeah. 20 of them in the room. And were these like in-school programs or were these after-school programs at first? How did, how, what these was, were in-school programs almost okay. exclusively. Yeah. And, and it, um, like curricular as part of, as part of the, the regular education curriculum or was it like an extra yeah, curriculum thing? the very first program was actually a, a, um, I think they used an experimental course number, they called okay, it. Okay, gotcha. And, right. um, but it was actually the, the a, a passion project of a choir director. So the choir okay. director had a bunch wow. of daily four credit classes and he had the latitude to create a new class that was still okay. for credit it was using this experimental course number that was called guitar and Excellent. so he asked for our help we got involved Excellent. with that um the whole discussion around four credit programs is something that i'm would love to have it's a different set of wormholes to go down right. but um, <laughs> but we we um you know by 2004 we had two school programs, a hundred kids involved, and six kids who had graduated and gone to college for guitar. Wow. So a little bit of success, a little bit of growth, and tons of problems. And what we realized was we were basically sitting here trying to teach these classes like they were private lessons when they weren't. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't the kind of infrastructure for teaching groups effectively um, that we imagined could be possible. And we had a range of challenges. And one of our biggest challenges was that we had kids at different levels of advancement in the same room at the same time. Right. They'd transfer into school or the administration would only give us two sections of guitar, but we had kids that had been there for three years and they were in the same room as the kid that just got put into guitar for the first time. And it was frustrating for everybody. Yes, yes. 
And so we needed to sort of come up with a multi-level solution for, um, for addressing those issues. And that began the process of, of how do we take what we know about smart skills sequencing on the guitar? How do we most specifically address the big bad wolf of guitar education in groups, which is low and bent right wrists with lots of tension? <laughs> so how do you just annihilate that? Like yeah. We wanted to blow that problem out of the water and never see it again because it was endemic. It's yeah. a nasty one. Lots of kids are super tense in the right hand, low mm -hmm. wrists and bent wrists. Right. And so we, the, the curriculum system ended up creating an entire unit that was exclusively what we call fixed fingers. Put the thumb mm -hmm. on I, I on two, and M on one. A thumb on three, I on two, and M yep. on one. Yep. Leave the right hand there for an entire unit, which is basically yep. 12 weeks of instruction. Make as the most beautiful music we could possibly make, repeating fingers on those strings. Yep. Yep. I know this was very controversial at the time. It's, it's fantastic. But it allowed an instructor with 20 kids in front of him or her to monitor those right wrists, uh -huh. make sure that they're high, and monitor those strokes and create really solid tone, really solid strokes, and do lots of musical and expressive things from the very beginning to, 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 to kind of empower, um, you know, coolness. And to create something that, that, that people would get excited about. So... Um, so that was one of the things we were trying to do was figure out how do we how do we create a system that will allow us to get consistent results in terms of right hand um, technique, music literacy. We were we were tired of guitarists having the reputation of being bad sight readers, and 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 then and then how do we work against this issue of multi level kids in the same room at the same time. So the Guitar Curriculum Library, you know, long story short, solved those things. It, it, it created a, a curricular solution. Right wrists look fabulous across the board. Every single kid in our community, uh, we've got thousands of them, and they all read beautifully. They read fluently at their level. That's no longer an issue. We just, it sort of just blew these things out of the water because we, were we didn't, didn't want to see them. And, and then we, we didn't believe that there was any reason the guitar players shouldn't read as well as other instruments. I mean, obviously there are unique challenges, right. but we wanted to address those issues head on. And then the issue of multi-level students in the same room was addressed through something that's complicated and I won't try to explain, except to say that we have a very smart database that, and we create a library of music with multiple iterations of parts at different skill levels that are interchangeable that allows a teacher to, to get level appropriate parts for every kid in the classroom. That's so smart. That is so smart. We were proud of that one. It was a good widget. So anyway, that's, I'm going to, I'll wrap up all of that to say that building those systems and then building training protocols around them helped us um, help our teachers in our community and then many, many more. And we have teaching partners in 40 states and 20 countries at this point. So it's, a lot of people that we use sort of a broad systems build and then um, and then there's a much narrower um, but tall and deep column of direct service in what we would call high priority areas. So high priority areas are um, low income schools, Title I schools, the juvenile justice system, um, Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Blind Learners in general. 
uh, and uh, and then low-income individual students who kind of create, um, who, who demonstrate that they have a great interest. And so through that, we meet those needs through um, direct teacher support, through direct teaching within the juvenile justice system, which we support financially and source and monitor, um, or um, you know all of the Braille adaptation stuff. Um, and then private lessons, free private scholarship-based lessons for students on a weekly basis to level the playing field for low-income students that wouldn't otherwise have access to um, high-quality, teaching yeah. on a private weekly basis we also how many, kids are, how many kids are involved in the in the free lessons free lessons right at this moment about 30 okay so yeah. is, so is that's, that a pretty it's a pretty pretty ty typical number for you in that program mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah and how many Absolutely. teachers do you have working for that uh, in the free lessons program, we'll generally have like five or more contractors. Yeah. So that's outside of our core staff. Um, right. And so those individuals are going to specific schools. They adopt that school. And, and um, so we spend about $1,000 per student per year on that program. That sounds so that's cheap. the reason there's only 30, <laughs> for, the reason there's only 30 yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for, the, for the returns on, on a program like that, that, that seems like... A, a very, a, a, you know, a very small price tag, I think, you know. You know, it's unbelievable, Carl. You know, I've been around long enough now that we have all of these full circle stories. So, for example, William Flores graduated in 2008 as a recipient of these scholarship lessons. And I can yeah. say this because Will is very public about this story. He graduated from high school got a job in the army band oh my uh, as a guitar player <laughs> and became Sergeant William Flores Oh my! and would work as a musician in the army for 12 years. Uh. He um, is transitioning now out of military service, came back to Austin, called us and said, I want to give back. Will is now on our board of directors oh, fantastic. as a former student in this lessons program, yeah, there are five full-time teachers employed by Austin Independent School District who were themselves students of ours there in you this go. program in Austin Independent School District. There you go. Went on to music in college, became certified music educators, and are now teaching in the same community that they grew up in. I have two full-time members of my administrative team that went through our program and one of them was also a free lessons recipient the other was not so Amazing. there's a there's a degree of kind of full-scale turnaround here yeah we got a bunch of kids in college right now that went through this program yeah um so yeah as you say the returns are pretty profound that's amazing that's that's so fantastic that's yeah wow so how do you how other than the, the guitar curriculum.com um or is it dot org? Is it I, dot com? Yeah, that's a dot yeah, com. Yeah. <laughs> um, other than providing that that material, what 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 does the organization do um, in terms of support of the, the the programs in the schools, the actual four credit programs in the in the schools? I, do you provide sure. so teacher it's, instruction it's on that? Um, incredibly complicated, Carl. Okay. <laughs> um, because humans are complicated. Yes. <laughs> um, so basically, if you, if you set your goal at young people having a positive experience with music 
about which they are proud. Yeah. That's our, that's our shining goal. Okay. Then our organization will do anything necessary to accomplish that goal. So providing the curriculum is pretty helpful yep. for a lot of teachers. That may even be just about all they need. If they, if they know a lot about guitar already, uh, if they are equipped to teach in the classroom. But the reality is very few people have those two skills. Very few people are yeah. quality guitarists and quality classroom instructors. Right. So a lot of people need help with one or the other of those elements. Guitar players don't know how to access the uh, how to teach in a classroom very well, uh, and and in some ways that's actually the steeper hill to climb. Sure. And then you know choir, orchestra, and band directors that want to teach guitar don't know enough about the guitar. So we have formal teacher trainings uh, that address those issues, um, but then we have a, a, a tremendous amount of other support that that, that 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 comes into play in terms of like consulting on a day to day basis, team teaching with teachers. There's like a, a life support resuscitation kind of kind of mode that we'll get into <laughs> with certain things. Um, for example, right now in Austin, um, there are three brand new teachers who got handed guitar programs after the start of school and they oh don't know how to do it. Wow. And they have, you know, 75 to a hundred plus students in their programs. And they are, this is, so this is a recipe to not achieve our shining yes. goal. Right. Yes. For the kids to have a positive experience in music education about which they are proud. Yeah. And so we're going to deploy a lot of resources at issues like that. There are situations where for any number of reasons, it could be maternity leave. It could just be uh, life change. It could be part of the current great resignation we keep hearing about. <laughs> teachers leave. They leave midstream and all of a sudden yeah. kids are left with nobody to teach. Yeah. It could be that there is a lack of administrative support for a program. And our job isn't so much in the classroom as it is in the principal's office to go in there and advocate at the, at the, at the, at the administrative level. Um, there's a huge amount of work involved in creating a program in the juvenile justice systems, for example. Uh, and you know that better than most. So, so these are all um, you know, instruments are a huge deal. We are purchasing instruments, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 at a time right. and sending these instruments out to various programs that need them or students that need them. Especially during the pandemic, we shipped 250, over 250 guitars directly to kids' houses wow. during the pandemic. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a whatever it takes mentality. Sure. But sure. a lot of it has to do with training teachers. Right. Training okay. and supporting teachers. Right, right, right. It, it's, that's, that's interesting. And I, th I think, you know, across the country, this is, a, this is an issue. I mean, it certainly is in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, how fortunate the teachers in your area are to have you there to help them with that. Because I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, I, well, I know for a fact here in, in, in Ohio, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of former students from, from my days teaching at, at, uh, at Otterbein, um, you know, who took guitar methods classes with me. And they, they, you know, they get thrown in this position like, hey, it was uh, 10 years ago when I took this class and I don't remember a damn thing about playing guitar. Can you help me? And, you know, so that that's happened a lot. And I, yeah. I you know, I can just imagine how helpful that would be to have an organization there to 
to support those it, people. That's it definitely is, is sort of a, a bonus to be here in Austin, working with teachers that are in Austin or in right. the five surrounding districts we work in. Um, at oh the gosh. same time, we're constantly giving telephone support, online support. We've done trainings in Ohio, uh, yeah. you know, with Cleveland Classical Guitar, uh, worked with a number of teachers in Ohio, uh, great programs that, uh, and then, you know, in, in, in our other kind of main area of, of focus has been in St. Louis. Um, wow. Oh my gosh. So uh, we helped St. Louis <laughs> Classical Guitar build that education system that grew there. Um, so that we work, we've been working in St. Louis since 2011. You're, you're going to have to rename the organization. I just, I mean, you know, it's, it's no longer <laughs> just, Austin, it's no longer just classical guitar. What are you going to, you're just going to have to say, hey, we're everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, my friend. It's, oh, it is, is sometimes comes up as an issue, though. Tremendous, tremendous. So I think we're, we're, we're coming to uh, 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 the, the end of our time together, unfortunately. But I, I do want to make sure that we, we talk briefly about the other, the other two buckets just a little oh, yeah. bit. Because, you know, let's, let's, let's. Let's see what's in them. Well, one of them, I think, is a relatively simple, and that is performance engagement. So performance engagement is, is kind of, I mean, uh, what, you know, uh, I said, I'm sorry, community engagement, which includes performance engagement. But community engagement is really like youth orchestra, um, okay. adult guitar ensemble. Um, performances in the community um, that, uh, you know, um, engage people in different ways. If that's library or educational activities, master classes, things like that. Yeah. So uh -huh. a lot of these are kinds of services that people might pay for. We have a beginning guitar class that goes for 10 weeks in the fall or 10 weeks in the spring. Um, you know, we're not interested in being a school. We're not interested in competing in the marketplace with private guitar instructors, for example. Right. But we love to have a beginning guitar class because a lot of people like to learn. And then they go on to become clients of a private guitar instructor somewhere. Right. And so we'll do things like that. Um, and uh, so so uh, I should probably mention that we are about to open a new venue. And um, this is a concert hall and creative learning center. Um, and within our creative learning center, there's going to be um, massive amounts for expansion of our community engagement efforts. Oh, fantastic. So, um, multiple is this a facility dedicated, dedicated just to Austin Classical Guitar or is it, are there yeah, other it's called, using as well? It's actually called the Rosette. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, yeah, the Rosette. Is there, is, is there anything like that anywhere else in the world? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think so. That is, that's tremendous. Oh, yeah. wow. Carl, I've actually, uh, we, we've actually commissioned a 60 inch rosette to oh, go wow. into the wood floor in the middle of the lobby. So oh, it's wow. actually, the whole thing is branded and built around the idea of classical guitar. Oh, um, that's fantastic. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, so this opens in December. <laughs> Um, so we're right in the midst of like construction and planning and all that sort of thing right at this moment. Um, so we can come back and talk about that some more. But anyway, community engagement is going to grow. I'll talk a little bit more about music and healing, which is the fourth okay. bucket. This is really, um, uh, and this is a good time for me to mention um, Travis Markham, who okay. has been on my uh, education team, has been our director of education since 2005. He okay. also runs... Um, the uh, music and healing division. Um, so I've got an amazing team. They're incredible people. Um, uh, but because I'm talking about music and healing, I'm talking about Travis right at this moment. So um, music and healing 
um, came to us starting in 2014 when Carnegie Hall invited us to become one of their first national partners in something they called the Lullaby Project. Oh, and yeah. The Lullaby Project is an intervention that they designed in response to caseworkers' requests for a artistic musical um, activity that would connect um, isolated individuals facing stress and anxiety um, who were in um, homeless maternity shelters or incarcerated moms on Rikers Island in New York. And so the doctors, caseworkers were looking for a way to kind of bridge some of these isolating social and emotional gaps that were involved with this particular population of, of you know, alienated individuals who found themselves in shelters and such uh, who were pregnant. And knowing that, you know, it's two lives that were dependent right. on the emotional health of the individual and, and, you know, acute medical care doesn't really get at these kinds of social and emotional issues. And so the question was, can music do something? Mm -hmm. And so Carnegie Hall's solution was to create a songwriting program where a trained uh, therapist music, that is to say a music um, a musician, uh, um, not a music therapist, which is a different thing, but a trained musician would work with an individual for uh, a period of weeks or months, listen, ask questions, write down stories, talk about personal matters like, how did you feel when you first learned you were pregnant? Or imagine your child is 18 years old. And what do you hope that he or she will know about you at this time in your life? So lots of reflection and sharing type exercises, all with the idea of writing a song together. Mm. So those ideas would then get distilled into song lyrics and the musician would lead in kind of writing the song itself, which would then be performed and recorded. And so the mom in each case, and in some cases dads, would have an opportunity to um, engage with another human being mm -hmm. to write something usually hopeful and personal, be listened to, all yeah. in service of something creative and beautiful that would ultimately be also shareable. Yeah. And so a lot of different things are happening in that particular model. It's beautiful. And we started doing it in 2014 and it grew and we started doing it with more and more different facilities. And then we realized, you know, that model could be applied to uh, veterans. That model could be applied to homeless individuals. That model could be applied in prison system. That model could be applied for victims of human trafficking. That model could be applied in the children's hospital uh, or for cancer patients with terminal diagnoses. Um, and so... Um, we also expanded the model a little bit, right. so it's still kind of built around that sharing and songwriting, but there's also other opportunities. For example, you you don't know what somebody might want until you walk into the hospital room, and maybe they want to learn to play a song. Maybe they want to just sit and hear you play. So our, 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 um, our approach is sort of one of, of flexibility with several options for our clinicians, yeah. and they go in and decide what's best. But certainly at the core of it is this songwriting piece. You can hear lots of these lullabies on our YouTube channel. If you want to hear, not all of them are on there, but um, but you can hear some of them. Grab a box of tissues and and, yeah. and pull up some lullabies. 
So <clears throat> that's music and healing. Yeah. And you can see if you remember back to sort of the whole I we discussion uh -huh. with Syrian refugees, the yeah. chat with, you know, adults with dealing with isolation for together. You can see how we couldn't have known how to do those art projects right. if we hadn't been experimenting and learning from the music and healing work. Yeah. That healing work really showed us, holy cow, music as an organizing principle really helps people open up and feel safe in conversations about what are really personal matters yeah. when they know they're doing it in service of writing a song. Like right, that, right. that opens up all these doorways for people's emotions. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, we don't share all of the songs depending on the person's preferences. Of course, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the trans transformative aspect of that, I'm sure, is huge. Uh, just yes. across the board in, on, on every single level. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. Wow. Matt, you are doing <laughs> amazing things there. A tremendous. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank um, you, Carl. Thank and, you for and just, just your life from, 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 from my, my <laughs> point of curiosity, um, how, how big is the staff of, of the organization? How many, how many? We have 13 full-time staff members. Yeah. Um, wow. So, and then uh, a whole bunch of contractors kind of near and far that work with sure. us on a variety of things. And then because we're opening a venue, um, we have sort of a new type of heavy lift to do yeah. in building our, our like event staff, front of yeah. house, and then crew, production crew and all of yeah. that. Those are all contract um, okay. relationships. And then we have a lot of volunteers as well. Do you have, um, again, just you know, out of my, my own personal curiosity, do you have for the facility, are you, will you, are you opening a full-time staff position? Who's like a facilities manager for that? For the venue? One of my, one of my team members internally became our production director. Okay. Gotcha. And she had, that's Jess Griggs. Okay. And Jess is, a, is, I know is that an name. Ace. I don't know why, um, but I know that name. Oh Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. Jess is great. She um, she has some, you know, significant past experience with this kind of thing, which is of course wonderful, yeah. as well as media experience and some other things. So she was able to able to. We had her doing something else involving actually community facing work with our education and, and healing okay. divisions. But when this came around, it became a good fit for her to kind of take on the the build out and the creation of the crew structures. Nice, excellent, wow. Tremendous! I, I just, I like my mind is is just spinning and ah, blown, goody. and it's so awesome. It's just, I like, yeah, and I, I just, again, I'm, I'm completely in awe of, of of everything that you're doing there and your community and uh, you know the organization is, is is very fortunate to have you and um, you know I, I yeah I'm just I'm I'm blown away and I'm thinking. You know, and you're not you're not you're not resting on your laurels. You're 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 continuing to move forward. And what can we do next? And what, how can we make this Always. world a better place? And and that that is it's inspirational and it's admirable. And, I, and I'm Aww. so happy to have been able to talk to you about that. And I'm you are coming back. You 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 are going to have to come Any, back. Anytime, Carl. There's I, I will. There's I will so much say, more we have to talk about. <laughs> I will say that um, that I have a passion point. And, um, and it uh, lives in a term I call form and essence. And I've just finished writing a book uh, called Form and Essence, which I hope will be out very soon. But in that book is much of what I know, much of what I think I've learned in 25 years of advocating for arts in the community. 
And uh, that thank you for paying market. attention to all of that mm-hmm. and, and collecting it. I mean, my gosh, yeah. that's, that's the other part is, you know, you're not you're not just bouncing around doing things. You know, you're, you're actually paying attention to what's happening as you're doing it and continuing to learn from that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we're all the benefit for that. You know, oh, that's, that's, thank that's, you, Carl. You're very kind, my friend. It's so good to see you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank and, you um, for your time. And I have one last question for you. Ooh, goody. <clears throat> what do you know about a good grilled cheese sandwich? <laughs> really? What an interesting question. Yeah. Do you, do you know why I'm asking that? No. Tell me. And then. Okay. I'll, I'll... So when I don't need you, you don't remember, but when we met, oh, it was, really? it was at one of Steve Aaron's things at, at, at Oberlin, one of his, his events there. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. remember which one, um, but I was staying in the dorm and uh, you were in the kitchen making lunch, uh-huh. and you said, "Would you like a grilled cheese sandwich?" And I thought to myself, "Why, yes, actually, I would like a grilled cheese sandwich." <laughs> and you made me a grilled cheese sandwich, and we 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 shared grilled cheese sandwiches in conversation. Oh wow! And that was that was how we met. And one of the things that we talked about, which uh, you know, again, this is another reason why I have to get you back on, um, was. You had talked to me about um, dealing with repetitive strain injury uh-huh. and your your discovery that um, the overarching umbrella of general physical health was what was really important. And mm-hmm. you discovered this by accident. And you, you can correct me if I'm if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but um, you had started swimming just to pass time and to, you know, yeah. While you were while you were healing and, and, and waiting to be able to practice again. And you discovered from from pursuing swimming that you, you became more fit and more healthy and mm-hmm. and you made that connection of, huh, my my general physical fitness actually is going to, you know, really impact how susceptible I am to playing related injury. But that's that's so wild to hear you talk about this car because I remember (laughs) it crystal clearly. And it was um, all because of a grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, I love it. Well, I still do love a great grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, it's one of my favorite things. I, I did join the sourdough bread baking pandemic. Oh, yes. So I've been making all this this bread this past year, and that makes a heck of a grilled cheese sandwich. Yes, I it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. You as well, my friend. And uh, best of luck to you. I'll be in touch, and uh, we will definitely do this again. Can't wait. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Bye. This is Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. Mm-hmm.